0: Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. Thank you for tuning in through Spotify, iTunes, however you're coming in through the door. I'm glad you're here. Of course, if you're watching this video on YouTube, do not forget to click the subscribe button and the bell for continued notifications so that you can get a ding every time I post a new video. Like, subscribe, of course, share if you're able to do so. This is going to be an important episode, I think, um, because of how much John Calvin has been utilized uh, in some ways by both sides of the debate, well, two debates, really, in some ways on both sides of the debates that are nevertheless interrelated, connected, uh, on Number one on natural theology, and then the other one uh, on on divine simplicity or classical theism. Um, Calvin has been utilized in different ways by both sides. For the classical theism side, you have the reception of t- the Oxford Handbook of the reception of Thomas Aquinas, and it goes through the reception of... of you know some aspects or some elements of Thomas's approach into the reformed, uh, the reformers. Um, so that's that's a helpful volume to consider. Of course, Dr. Richard Muller in his post-reformed, uh, post-Reformation reform dogmatics (PRRD) also touches on that and is very thorough, thoroughgoing in those terms. Uh, and then for the you know the side that opposes classical theism, the language of divine simplicity, the conception of natural theology that you find in the medieval, and especially the post-Reformed, very clearly post-Reformed scholastics, uh, that side will employ Calvin to say, no, look, Calvin believed in a sensus divinitatis, it's an innate knowledge of God, and he really didn't focus all that much on a natural theology. And so this is being marshaled kind of as a, as a means to address theological method. Uh, and Moeller is being employed as well. Thinking about a recent episode that Dr. James White has, has done that has addressed theological method. I'm not going to respond directly to that video. Uh, I have watched it, and then I've watched certain parts of it again. Um, I'm, I'm not going to res- respond directly to the claims that were made in that video. Uh, but I am going to hopefully... Um, kind of set forth some information that will help you uh, to be informed uh, concerning the discussion, uh, some things that I think will be will be helpful. And I um, hope Dr. James White watches this uh, and everyone that, that he's kind of um, uh, siding with over this deal, Dr. Jeffrey Johnson, Dr. Owen Strain. it's my hope that, that they'll catch uh, wind of this video as well. Uh, What I want to do is, uh, okay, so first of all, before I get started on Calvin, there are uh, two distinctions, really, that I want to make. Um, The first distinction has to do with the term natural theology, and distinguishing between natural theology in subiecto, would be the Latin, and natural theology in se. So when we make that distinction between in subiecto and in se, in subiecto is, or in terms of the subject as it's considered by the knower, um, uh, or or in the in the mind of the subject, right, uh, which is the knower, um, the object as it's as it's received or interpreted by the knower, uh, and then in say that is the object in and of itself. So if you say, for example, uh, you know, use the use the terminology of the natural knowledge of God. There's a distinction to be made, of course, between the natural knowledge of God as it really, truly, objectively exists in, say, that is, in and of itself, and the natural knowledge of God as it exists in the subject, in subiecto, right? Um, and the reason we make that distinction is, is of course, because there can be an objective knowledge to be, to be uh, apprehended, to be known. Um, and of course, the the subject, the knower, uh, can either apprehend or interpret that knowledge accurately or or not, right? And so, the 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 knowledge in the that is in the subject, in the knower, can deviate uh, and can uh, demutate, as it were, into a false knowledge, um, which really isn't. A knowledge at all it's just it's just falsehood um and so it, it, we need to make that distinction we always need to make the distinction between epistemology and ont- ontology what's objectively out there natural knowledge of God out there in subiecto or in, in say natural knowledge in and of itself as God has made it available and and natural knowledge as it exists in the subject or in the knower so we make that distinction that's an important distinction to make going into The discussion that we're about to go into. And we also have the distinction between what Dr. Richard Muller calls system and what might be termed prolegomena. So prolegomena, technically, in formal theological terminology, comes prior to system. And that's because when Dr. Muller talks about system, he's talking usually about the system of of distinctly Christian theology, which is Prized of the articles of faith, articuli fide, um, and that's Christian system. Prolegomena comes before that, uh, and um, depending on who you read, Prolegomena will include uh, articuli mixtus, um, or mixed articles, that is, articles that are, are, are known both through nature and through the scriptures. Um, so, for example, God exists, or the existence of God, or just God himself, would be a mixed article, because God is known through creation, per Romans 1, yet he's also, of course, revealed and known through Scripture. So, he's, he's, God is not uh, a, an article of, uh, a pure article of faith. He's, he's a mixed article, that the, the doctrine of God, rather, is a mixed article to some extent. Of course, there are uh, there are elaborations, revelatory elaborations upon uh, the Godhead that we can't know through nature; that we can only know through Scripture. Which, which at that point you consider God, uh, for example, in Trinity uh, as a, a, an article of faith. Right? Uh, you can't know Trinity through nature. You can't know Father, Son, Holy Spirit through nature. You can only know Father, God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through Scripture. And I wanted to set those those distinctions out, you know, forthrightly because they're going to have some relevant re, uh, relevance to what we're going to talk about here. So, okay, Calvin. Um, know first of all uh, that as you as you read um, Calvin, uh, you are dealing with someone who was not theologically trained. Okay, I. Now let me qualify. I'm not saying that to uh, to uh, demean Calvin as a theologian. Calvin was one of the greatest theologians actually who, 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 who's ever lived um, And part of that is because of what what he achieved in his institutes and his commentaries. So he's a very serious theologian, someone to take very seriously. but he's not he's not formally trained as a theologian. Calvin was formally trained as an attorney. Um, but not a theologian. And so that's going to play into his emphases. Uh, That's going to play into his method and the way he does theology. And as far as it goes, actually, uh, that actually says a lot more about Calvin uh, than it takes away from him. Um, Because even though he wasn't formally theologically trained at university uh, in theology, but in law, uh, he did uh, an extremely erudite job in the Institutes in terms of laying out his doctrine systematically. Uh, But, of course, you're looking at a 16th century reformer uh, who did not have the same emphases, did not have the same political and social context, did not have the same education as some of his contemporaries, and then some who would come to be well-known in the following generation after him, uh, who would absolutely be theologically trained uh, in university and so on and so forth. So just keep that in the back of your mind as you read Calvin and uh, you read his, his not only his commentaries, but his institutes as well. Um, what I want to show here is that there indeed was a natural theology in in Calvin, uh, and he did have an understanding of uh, the validity of natural arguments for the existence of God. Um he did not think that the only, you know, kind of uh, vestige of natural theology remained at the level of innate, natural revelation, um, but that it could indeed be acquired through uh, formal argumentation. Um, of course, this is not Calvin's emphasis, and I would say that in terms of, of, of system, this is not even the... Post-reformed emphasis. I mean, even Turretin, who has somewhat a, a somewhat of a robust understanding of natural theology, we wouldn't say that he utilizes natural theology uh, to inform uh, his understanding and articulation of the articles of faith, which which can, which make up his system, in the vocabulary uh, that Muller uses. Um, so that's a very important distinction to make. I think one that's not being understood in the current discussion. But let's start here with uh, Dr. Richard Muller. Uh, He says, uh, this is 274, volume 1, page 274, volume 1, Post-Reformation Reformed Dogmatics. Um, It's the Reformed Orthodox Theological Prolegomena, the section. Um, And he says, Calvin, in fact, consistently, and this is, let me actually start a, a, a sentence or so before. He says, on the basis of these declarations... Which is the problem is that sin distorts perception and superstition undermines all right knowledge. Okay, so you have sin, total depravity, and all of that playing into the pagan's perversity of of natural knowledge. And he says, On the basis of these declarations, Barthian readers of Calvin have gone to great lengths to deny the existence of natural theology, while all that Calvin does is declare such theology useless to salvation. So, Mueller's claim is that we shouldn't be saying that Calvin denied natural theology as his Barthian, future Barthian readers claimed, and and there's this whole discussion of Calvin versus the Calvinists, and you have Calvin denying natural theology, and, you know, the Calvinists later on asserting or affirming a more robust natural theology, and, and, and. Muller argues strongly, I think, against that thesis on a historical basis. Um, uh, nevertheless, he goes on and he says um, Calvin declares natural theology useless to salvation. Everybody agrees with this. Natural theology cannot save a person, right? Doesn't matter how uh, elaborate you are in terms of your natural theology, you're not going to be saved through natural theology because all you're all you're getting through natural theology is natural law and you're getting a few attributes of God goodness wisdom knowledge etc power He goes on and he says Calvin in fact consistently assumes the existence of false pagan natural theology that was warped that has warped the knowledge of God available in nature into gross idolatry Calvin must argue in this way because he assumes the existence of natural revelation which in say is a true knowledge of God. So a true natural knowledge of God exists. That's Muller's claim, and he's also claiming that Calvin believed that. He goes on and he says, if natural theology were impossible, idolatrous man would not be left without excuse. The problem is that sin takes the natural revelation of God and fashions, in fact, an idolatrous and sinful theology. The theology exists... And man is to blame because it is sin and sin alone that stands in the way of a valid natural theology. So in other words, the issue between man and natural theology is not some mechanistic, you know, chemical or mystical inability for man to know this knowledge in say, right? Um, This is an ethical, willing suppression And so usually what you get in contemporary arguments against natural theology is you have something like, well, since man is totally depraved, he cannot know God through nature. Actually, it's assumed in Scripture, and, and the great reformer John Calvin assumed along with Scripture, that indeed man can know God through natural theology, but he because of his sin nature, willfully rejects the true natural theology, and he willfully, actually, and consciously warps it into an idol. So the issue is not natural theology, nor is it the existence of natural theology. It's, it's what's going on in man, uh, and, and it's man's willful denial that is actually condemned, because it is willful. And it's choosing to decline from God's uh, goodness as He's revealed it in, in and through creation, and as He's made it knowable in and through creation. So, n- for Calvin, natural theology exists. That's that's Muller's claim. Natural theology exists. It cannot save. That's Muller's claim about Calvin. We'll see here in a moment that that's that's what Calvin actually believes because we'll go to. His primary source material, and that's also what's what has been received in the post-Reformed, Francis Turretin, etc., etc. Even Thomas Aquinas agrees that natural knowledge cannot save, that there has to be a higher divine science um, that is super-added to that basic knowledge that is apprehended through creation. And that's in the very first volume of the Summa. So this is a dynamic that, that is is consistent with... From at least we could go probably further than this, but from at least the Middle Ages, it's received. It's a distinction received up into the Reformation, the reformers, um, and it's received and developed and elaborated in the post-Reform scholastic literature. Um, now, just here, uh, uh, Muller talks about you know some of Calvin's commentary on the psalm or, or, on the psalms. We're not going to read this psalm or his commentary on it. We're going to read something else that's, that's going to help us, but, um, but this is Muller's scholarship on Calvin's interpretation here. Um, he says, It is clear from the psalm itself and from Calvin's commentary on it that David is not using the word as a key to unlock the otherwise closed doors of natural revelation. In other words, Calvin doesn't understand the, the Bible to be required as a key to unlock the truths revealed through nature which is a common claim today. If you don't know Scripture, you can't know the truths that are revealed through nature. You have to have Scripture, special revelation, to unlock the knowledge that's in nature, right? That's Mueller is essentially claiming here that that's not what Calvin understood. That's not the dynamic, in particular, that Calvin understood. So he's not using the word, David... In Calvin's understanding and Muller's understanding, David's not using the word "quote unquote" as a key to unlock the otherwise closed doors of natural revelation, but is rather, as one of God's children, looking directly at the book of nature, where the knowledge of God is manifest, albeit not as clearly as through the word. All right. So again, there's another distinction here. Um, and by the way, this 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 psalm that he's talking about here is da, 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 Psalm 19. Uh, 1 through 9, it looks like. Okay, so that's that's kind of some, some words from a secondary source, uh, Richard Muller, on Calvin. And I think what we'll find is that those words uh, ring true when we look at some primary source material. So first what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, the Institutes. There's a lengthy discussion in the section on God's providence that relates to natural theology. And then we're also going to look at um, Calvin's commentary on Acts 14, specifically verse 17. Um, and where he basically claims that the apostles were us- using natural argument arguments to interact with the pagans. So the first thing I want to do is I want to look at um, Book 1, Chapter 16, uh, Article 1, uh, The Doctrine of Special Providence of God over all the creatures singly and collectively, as opposed to the dreams of the Epicureans. About fortune and fortuitous causes, so that's the context, kind of of the discussion that we're about to read here. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, so uh, please, uh, I'm, I'm, you can, you can, I'm going to tell you that you can trust me to contextualize these quotes, but I would also encourage you to go back and and read the larger body in which they're situated, so that you can you can contextualize them yourself. So again, this is the context of this discussion is on providence, God's providence. And he says, concerning providence, for although even wicked men are forced by the mere view of the earth. So he's not talking about innate knowledge here of God. He's not talking about the sensus divinitatis. He is talking about the capacity of man to receive knowledge of God, but from creation, the creation around man. He says, for although even wicked men are forced, wicked men are forced by the mere view of the earth and sky, to rise to the creator. He doesn't say to the false creator. He says to the creator. And then he says, yet faith has a method of its own in assigning the whole praise of creation to God. Remember that distinction we talked about earlier between the mixed articles, right? Articles that uh, are revealed through both nature and scripture and then articles of faith that comprise Christian system that are revealed only through the scriptures. That's relevant here because Calvin is making that same distinction. He's talking about the natural knowledge of God, which all men are actually forced to have by virtue of their examination of the world around them, earth and sky, to rise to the creator, not a false creator, a true creator. But faith, he says, has a method of its own in assigning the whole praise of creation to God. So faith takes us further than just mere natural revelation and our apprehension of it can do. He goes on to say this about the carnal mind. He says, the carnal mind when once it has perceived the power of God in the creation, stops there. So in other words, he's saying the carnal mind does perceive the power of God in the creation. problem is, of course, it stops there. And at the farthest, thinks and ponders on nothing else than the wisdom, power, and goodness displayed by the author of such a work. Matters which rise spontaneously and force themselves on the notice, even of the unwilling. And now what he's talking about there, that's still acquired knowledge. A lot of times when we're talking about scholastic argumentation, like Thomas's Five Ways, for example, what Thomas is doing is he's making the internal implicit process of the human mind explicit. And he's formulating it in terms of syllogism. But that's a process that actually takes place, sometimes even involuntarily, in the mind of the creature Right? Uh, and that's the steps that the mind goes through like that to make a deduction, right? You're constantly, as a creature, you're constantly looking at things and making deductions. Well, um, that's, that's the whole act of, act of knowing for the creature. It's discursive apprehension of the world around him or her. And so Calvin's not, Calvin's not talking here about the innate knowledge, right? He's talking here about acquired knowledge that comes to all men. Uh, even if they don't formulate a you know long-winded philosophical syllogistic argument, this is something that 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 all men apprehend through what has been made. It's a natural theology that's common to everybody through the creation. This is not innate knowledge. This is acquired knowledge. Um, so he says, matters which rise spontaneously enforce themselves on the notice even of the unwilling, or on some general agency on which the power of motion depends, exercised. In preserving and governing it, that's really interesting because there's a he appeals there to, to motion. Um, uh, so first he says, you know that that the, the carnal mind perceives at at best the wisdom, power, and goodness displayed by the author through creation. Or on some general agency on which the power of motion depends. That's what they get to. They 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 and and, and Calvin is mentioning that in a valid way. Like this is some way that man actually comes to a, a an apprehension of the of the basic, basic non-salvific knowledge of God, albeit it is true propositionally, and he does so through understanding what God has revealed about himself through creation. Um, and then he mentions of course here. Uh, that there's some general agency, some, some, some what man would call God, on which the power of motion depends, exercised in preserving and governing it. So I think there he's, he's actually alluding to like an argument for motion. Um, he goes on and says, In general, indeed, philosophers teach. When Calvin refers to the philosophers, he's not talking about Christian theologians. He's talking about the pagan philosophers. In general, indeed, philosophers teach and the human mind conceives that all the parts of the world are invigorated by the secret inspiration of God. Okay, so here he's he's clearly saying that the philosophers know this, and, and they know it to such an extent that they actually teach it, and the human mind in general conceives of it. And then he goes on and he qualifies, "...they do not, however, reach the height to which David rises, taking all the pious along with him when he says, "...these wait all upon thee, that thou mayest give them their meat in due season, that thou givest them, they, they, that, that thou givest them they gather. Thou openest thine hand, they are filled with good. Thou hidest thy face, they are troubled. Thou takest away their breath, they die and return to their dust." That's um, Psalm one o four twenty seven through 30. And he goes on and he says, No, though they subscribe to the sentiment of Paul that in God we live and move and have our being, Acts seventeen twenty eight, yet they are far from having a serious apprehension of the grace which he commands because they have not the least relish for that special care in which alone the paternal favor of God is discerned. So in other words, these are rebels against God, they have some glimmerings of truth about God, yet they stop at a certain point. They form that knowledge into idols, and they do not go as far as faith, for example, which is worked by the Holy Spirit, in accordance with the grace of God, could take them. All right. All right, so that's the Institutes, and I think that's enough from the Institutes to, to validate what Muller said concerning Calvin. The, again, this is not just the sensus divinitatis, this is not just innate knowledge that 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 Calvin is validating here. This is an acquired knowledge that is perceived from the world that every every human being lives in and moves in and has their being according unto. Now what I want to do is I want to look at his commentary on Acts 14 14 through 18 but we're going to hone in here on on verse 17 and what does verse 17 say Acts 14 verse 17 says nevertheless he did not leave him, god did not leave himself without witness in that he did good gave us rain from heaven and faithful seasons filling our hearts with food and gladness so again this is this is a this seems to be an area that Calvin is interested in how how the providence of god in creation actually reveals god to all men and here this comes out again in his commentary on Acts fourteen, because these are arguments really from the providence of the Creator that Paul and Barnabas are employing and and are and are and are offering to the the these pagan philosophers. And um, of course, the 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 what Calvin calls a frivolous objection is that um, you know that there is that there is this god that this this personal god or this 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 god who uh who who providentially cares for the creation uh is is folly it's it's foolish um and they actually end up worshiping paul and barnabas as if they were you know like zeus and 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 hermes um and this is just their Pagan idolatry coming out. So you see this in verse 12. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Um, and of course, the you know, Paul says, stand up, get off, get off, get up on your feet, and and cut the shenanigans. Uh, and when verse 14 tells us that but when Paul when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and, and, and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. And then he goes into verse 17. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness. So what he's about to list out are witnesses of God, of the reality of God. He did good. God did good. That's his providence. He, he's, he's benevolent toward all creation. Gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And then verse 18. And with these things, sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. <laughs> so the multitude just continued on in its folly. So because of the uh uh this 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 ridiculousness uh that's going on and um and uh, this this kind of scoffing attitude of the of the pagans combined with their overt idolatry Calvin says Paul and Barnabas cut off this frivolous objection when they show that God lay hid in such sort that he still bear witness of himself and his divinity. All right. So he's just repeating sentiment behind Acts 14, 17. And he says, notwithstanding, we must see how these two things can hang together. For if God bear witness of himself, he did not suffer the world to err. In other words, if God left witness for himself, for the world generally, it's, it's not the case that nobody knows him. Through the revelation that he's given of himself through the creation, okay, and there are contemporary claims that come from different corners of presuppositionalism and um, you know the 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 groups that deny classical theism. Uh, that that would say, you know, well, no, you know, they don't have true knowledge of God through that which has been created. And they'll they'll grant a true knowledge of God, but they can't really explain what it is because they'll just relegate it to some innate kind of feeling that God exists. Um, but Calvin here is not talking about that. This is, These are external creational witnesses that God has left all mankind through which God or through which man perceives God to actually exist. The world did not err if if God... If God revealed Himself through creation, and then he says, Calvin goes on, "I answer that this kind of testimony whereof mention is made was such as that it made men without excuse." So he's relating it to the language of Romans one, and yet was it not sufficient to salvation? Okay, so again we see in uh, we see the same dynamic, we see the same distinction made here that we saw in Calvin's Institutes, we saw it also in Muller, Muller observed it as well. That there is this natural knowledge of God, but it's not good enough for salvation. Okay, and everybody agrees with that. He later on says, again, I'm not reading this entirely, so feel free to go check my work. He goes on and he says, God has indeed, and he's commenting on, on giving rain and fruitful seasons in, in verse 17. God has indeed revealed himself to all mankind by his word since from the beginning. By his word since the beginning, rather. But Paul and Barnabas show that there was no age on which God did not bestow benefits, which might testify that the world is governed by his government and commandment, he says. And because the light of doctrine had been buried long thee, by that he means that the doctrine that had been revealed through special revelation in times past, had been buried long thee, therefore they say only that God was showed by natural arguments, evidences, he says, and then he goes on and he says, And it is to be thought that they did, the apostles, that they did in such sort set forth the magnificence and greatness of the works of God as became them. So he's saying that they gave, Paul and Barnabas gave natural arguments here in verse 17. But he says these are these are only summary points that Luke gives. So they're obviously, this is probably not the fullness of the argumentation that Paul and Barnabas actually give there. Verbatim, But Luke is just including kind of the wave tops of the dialogue because Calvin says, but it was sufficient for Luke to touch the sums and chief points of matters. So it, 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 Calvin here is thinking that they probably gave more elaborate argumentation than just saying that God did good. God gave rain from heaven and fruit for fruitful seasons and fruitful seasons. He bestowed upon you, filling our hearts with food and gladness. He pro- they probably elaborated on those points. And then Luke is just summarizing them. That's Calvin's thought. But he also says they probably didn't offer arguments as elaborate as the philosophers would have would have argued, um, would have set forth. So these are still arguments that would have been able to appeal rhetorically to the multitude. He's, they're not just addressing, you know, the learned men in the Areopagus. They're addressing the multitude. Nevertheless, what Calvin's saying is that they're offering natural arguments. He says that's his language. All right. Um, And so he does not, of course, uh, think, Calvin does not think it's folly to to offer natural arguments to a multitude of unregenerated people. In fact, he believes that that's exactly what the apostles were doing in Acts 14, 17. Okay. So I think with, with that said, We'll go ahead and close up there. There's more that we could go into again, you know Psalm 109 is another place we could visit. Um, but I think we've looked at enough here to at least vindicate was what Muller has said about Calvin that, that Calvin did not only make a distinction between natural theology and supernatural theology that that's assumed throughout his throughout his work, especially in the earlier parts. Uh, but he also made a distinction between mixed articles. And articles of faith—that is, things that can be known through nature and scripture, and things that can only be known through scripture—which also comprise what Muller would call Christian system. All right, and um, and so I think that that's very helpful to consider. I think it's—I think what we've presented here is enough to at least vindicate the assertion that Calvin did think that natural theology was indeed valid. Um, and was useful even to some extent, albeit it cannot save anybody, right? That's what Calvin denies about natural theology. Calvin does not deny the validity of natural theology altogether. What he denies is that natural theology can save. That is unequivocally what has been the case from the medieval theologians in virtually all the Reformed and especially in the post-Reformed scholastics. So hopefully that's helpful food for thought. Again, if you uh, appreciated this video, if it was helpful for you in any way, please uh, like, subscribe, and share. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful rest of your day.